you are no longer in chains you're not caged in the bazaar being sold but actually you still are because still you can walk on the earth and say i'm free that he doesn't touch me i am not going to be caged up i'm not chained i'm giving you a chance to use food as a way to break out and all the hands were going up and it was just i cried because i realized that you know it makes sense in every culture in every culture where women are suppressed or where there is patriarchy and this also applies to this country where women are, are made to feel that they're not as good as male chefs you know they just need one person to be the heckler they need the one person to be on stage to say you are equal and i believe in you Welcome to Fortnum's Hungry Minds podcast with me, Tom Parker Bowles. Today, I'm joined by one of the country's most inspiring chefs, the wonderful Asma Khan. Born and raised in Calcutta, India, Asma moved to the UK in 1991 with very little cooking experience. 30 years later, and she's an award-winning chef, restaurateur, author, and philanthropist. Asma is also the first British chef to feature in the Emmy-nominated Netflix series Chef's Table, and last year she topped Business Insider's magazine's list of the 100 coolest people in food and drink. And this all puts her in prime position to judge the much-anticipated 2021 Fortnum Mason Food and Drink Awards. So without further ado, hello Asma. Hello Tom, how are you? Very well. How are you? I'm fine. I I'm I'm sorry if I'm going to be a bit echoey. I'm in a building site. and this is the only room uh where there isn't any builders building or breaking something well that that's perfect it goes straight into my first question we've been missing darjeeling express you've closed soho you've got a new site that you're sitting in at the moment when are you reopening well i mean i i'm hoping to reopen sometime in the middle of november i'm taking bookings from the 18th of november so that's really like the hard deadline so i've set myself that and hopefully we will make that This is a much bigger site. It's the old Carluccio's in in Covent Garden, isn't it? Yes, it's it's massive. It's like an absolute palace and we just can't believe the size of the kitchen, but I have not taken the top floor, the first floor where, you know, there's be this private dining room and the garret rooms. I haven't taken that bit because it's a difficult time and the landlord was very very helpful, so I have the kitchen obviously, which is the basement and the ground floor, which is the deli and the restaurant. Okay and so the de- I mean the deli's fascinating we're very used to italian delis and what 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 would you be selling in the deli Well I will be selling in deli what you would recognize from your trips in India I'm going to be selling food that you get outside stations in stations on trains really the food of my childhood things have become very boring nowadays in India with food and there's too much plastic and packaging around but I mean the time that I remember you know traveling from Calcutta on the Kalka mail which is two nights and one day uh, all the way up to north india past delhi to aligarh you got all this fascinating food along the way and i decided that the delhi would be the great place to get my women to cook their regional food because it shouldn't just be about me this is fascinating because it, it comes straight back to your route to being a restaurateur a chef everything else is 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 it's hardly been the most typical way of doing it now we 1991 you arrive in cambridge as a newlywed um having moved from calcutta were you a great chef when you came over no i couldn't cook at all nothing no, i couldn't even make rice wow i had a typical arranged marriage where you know everyone panics that the marriage will fall through if you don't do it quickly it's not like brexit okay so this is like really everyone is like there's no time you got to do the deal now and uh, so basically 
I had like two and a half months before getting married and leaving. So I asked my then going to be husband that, you know, do I need to learn how to cook? And he was like, no, I'm very liberal. I don't believe in gender roles. I can cook. Didn't tell me he's such a terrible cook. And, you know, I go to school, you know, I've just got this guy. I'm going to wrap him around my finger. He's going to cook for me. All of that was not happening. In Cambridge, he used to cook one meal in the beginning of the week and had to eat it that whole week. Yeah, he ate every meal in college. He left me to eat this chicken curry over one week. Uh, and rice that was so sticky, it was incredible. Oh, wow. And, and so you taught yourself slowly. I mean, you, you, your background, you come from a, a royal background in India, you know, Rajput on your father's side, um, Bengal on your mother's. Did you grow up eating wonderful food? I did. I did. I grew up eating, one, you know, really, really spectacular food, but not just royal food. I grew up eating the food of Calcutta, you know, the street food of Calcutta, the food that you got in little cabins and cafes, incredible. And uh, so I had a very kind of, uh, you know, it's almost schizophrenic existence that we were pretty much, you know, pretty ordinary uh, household. But then, you know, there were times when you suddenly switched to royalty when we went back home for holidays. And then we got all this incredible royal food. But most of the time, we just ate the food of Calcutta. And my mother was a caterer. So we did eat very, very special food because that's what my mother did. She did very traditional Mughlai weddings. And she also ironically did the food at the race course and did uh, the version of, there used to be an old restaurant called Furpo's and she'd inherited the entire staff and she did the food of Furpo's, you know, continental French style food. So really strange livelihood for my mother that, you know, she cooked this very traditional Muslim food for weddings and then she did this, very, very unusual kind of food for Calcutta in the race course. And were you always interested in food? Although you didn't cook, did you sort of wander around the kitchen tasting things? Were you, were you always fascinated by food? I was always fascinated by food. I've spent a lot of my childhood in the kitchen. I always was sent little plates of food to try, to taste. You know, and what was really nice when I was young, it made me feel very important because anything I said, like, oh, this, there's not enough salt or there's not enough chilies, the cook would not retaste it. They would just immediately add that to that dish. So they took whatever I said very seriously. And, you know, in some ways, you know, I also took it very seriously. I was the taster and I just loved to eat. And I was completely not interested in cooking anything. Tasting all this wonderful food, surrounded by wonderful food in one of the great food cities on earth. So you come in 1931 to Cambridge where you subsist on chicken curry all week long. So at what point do you think, enough. I'm now going to learn, you know, you, you must have been so depressed coming to, I mean, Cambridge is a beautiful city, but it's, it's not exactly Calcutta, is it? In terms of uh, the, uh, the bustle and the hustle and the, the whole atmosphere of the place. No, and the thing is in Cambridge, uh, if you're not a student and if you're not an academic, you're nobody. So I was living in the heart of the university in a university home that had been given to my husband because that year he was admissions tutor and graduate tutor and still doing all his lecturing. He was extremely busy and we had this this lovely little house that I discovered later on had no heating. We just had a fireplace. <laughs> and then I went to visit someone's house and they had a box where there was heat coming out of. And I kept saying, Mushta, they have a box with heat coming out. He kept saying, shoo, shoo, shoo to me. I didn't understand what it was. I'd come from Calcutta, you know, you don't have heating there. And I was just so shocked when I realized that other people have heating in their house. It was this little cottage that we lived in. Everything froze. Every morning there was water stuck froze on the sink and the river froze that I moved in January and the food was diabolical in Cambridge. You could not buy anything. 
And I was a poor cyclist, extremely unfit. I would cycle over to Mill Road, huffing and puffing, to buy anything from this one Pakistani shop. And I would just stand there and stare at everything. I had to buy only how much I could cycle back with. It was really depressing. And so in, in terms of beginning to learn to cook, did, did was it from a book or, or, or did you, you know, ring back home? Um, how, how did you teach yourself to cook? Well, the thing is, I, had, I couldn't call home. It was very expensive. At that time, if you went one second over, you were charged for a minute. It's very hard to imagine what it was like to be away from home 30 years ago. So now when people tell me, oh, you know, I miss home, you can Skype your dog in Delhi now. You know, at <laughs> yeah. that time, you could not call. My parents didn't have a phone or a computer. So even though there was a computer in the college library, I didn't have one computer. I didn't have, and there was no mobile phone. So you couldn't communicate. So I was beginning to think that this was not worth it, that this is hell. The Quran is wrong. It is not burning fire. It is actually Cambridge in winter. And I have come to hell and I'm living with a stranger who doesn't appreciate food. And I went, then when I went back home, I told my mother, I don't want to go back. And that, you know, in a family like mine uh, was a huge scandal like 30 years ago to leave your husband. And no one would believe the story that, you know, I was hungry. Everyone would have speculated, you know, that, oh, he rejected her. Our traditions in a patriarchal society like India has changed a bit now. But this idea of the rejected woman being sent back by the Cambridge Dawn would have been too much of humiliation for my family. And then I realized that everyone was desperate to teach me how to cook because they got it. They understood. I wasn't faking it. He wasn't beating me. He wasn't doing anything to me. He was a really nice man. He was fine. But it was just the hunger. They understood that. And then I realized I can actually play on their fear. And all these aunts who never gave recipes, I told them this could be such a scandal. No one will marry your daughters. I got everyone to give their recipes. They were so terrified that I would not go back. And this is probably why I learned to cook so fast. Because, you know, when people give you recipes that they really don't want you to cook, uh, they leave some ingredients out. They don't tell you everything. This is very traditional. You know, they, they kind of fake it. They don't, because nothing is written, they're telling you stuff. So they forget to tell you some stuff. So this is why you never learn how to cook unless someone really wants to teach you. And they really wanted to teach me because they said, let this girl go back and not bring shame to the family by running away because she was hungry. Because the larger society would never have believed that story that I left because he's a bad cook. They wouldn't have. They would have thought he was all kinds of bad things, but not because he can't cook. The recipes, were they mainly Bengali, mainly uh, from Calcutta? No, they weren't. They were the things that, you know, the aunt who taught me most of the food in the beginning was from Hyderabad. She was from the Nizam family, the royal family of Hyderabad. And she taught me a lot of this traditional Nizam food, which I'm also going to have in the Delhi. And I also learned Bengali food, but not that much. But mostly I learned Mughalai food uh, from my father's family. Uh, from Avad, you know, that region, but also from my mother's family, which is, Bengal has this really uh, split cuisine of Bengali, very simple peasant style, you know, with very simple ingredients, a lot of fish and vegetables. And then there is this very royal Muslim cuisine. And I also, you know, grew up surrounded by Anglo-Indian food, which is absolutely fascinating, which is unique to Calcutta, the chops and the crumb chops and cutlets. And it was just an incredible space to, and whatever I want, I like to eat, I learn to cook. So I, le- I learned to cook a lot of stuff. 
whatever I wanted to eat. And, and the Anglo-Indian is fascinating. I remember when I was in Calcutta many years ago and, and, and going to the Tolly Gunge Club. It was yes. sort of a relic of empire with its sort of, you know, green lawns and the, the chili, the, the use of toasted cheese sandwiches. And I mean, Anglo-Indian food is quite interesting, isn't it? It's eaten in Calcutta quite widely. Yes. Anglo-Indian food is incredibly fascinating in Calcutta because for most people, they don't even understand that it's Anglo-Indian and that's what, what is very interesting. So, you know, all the cutlets and the chops we have, we have fish chops, we have, you know, various versions of scotch egg. And people are just like surprised when you think this is a British influence. They're like, really? Because it's so much part of the fabric of Calcutta, very much like the old buildings where you go into the commercial area. You could be in London. You could be in London because uh, you go to the old churches, same design. And this kind of, you know, where people have never been able to separate Calcutta of the Raj, Calcutta of today. And, you know, and somehow we got left behind. After independence, Delhi changed and, you know, Bombay became this big city. And, you know, and now with tech, you know, you find in South India, a lot of cities are, are, are progressing in this kind of decaying city, which Calcutta is. And that beauty was left untouched. And so the cuisine remains, you know, without this kind of fusion that you will find everywhere else, where they want to put, you know, seaweed and uh, all kinds of things on everything. And, you know, people are obsessed about sushi. God, it would have bloody die eating sushi in, in the heat of Delhi. But people have become obsessed with, you know, MasterChef Australia. But in Calcutta, people are much simpler. They love good food. And there is still that, you know, tradition of simplicity. You don't need to mix it with a foreign cuisine for it to be nice, which is not the case with Delhi and Bombay. And I apologize to everyone from Delhi and Bombay who's listening to this. <laughs> it's true. You'll have no taste. <laughs> well, I'll keep you out of this one. I mean, so back to Cambridge now. You're back in Cambridge. You're, you're teaching yourself, well, teaching slowly, using all those recipes. At what point does feeding yourself and, and feeding the family move into, well, hang about? It might be quite fun, you know, d- doing a supper club. When when did that first start? Because obviously during this time is just, just just to add this to our listeners um you, you weren't just sitting at home learning to cook you were also um getting a doctorate in in british constitutional law as well well i think that i realized that you know it healed me when i could cook my own food and in the aromas of that kitchen i went home when i was in this crazy cambridge place where i was cooking in this mad small kitchen I not only did I go home, I felt the presence of Ammu, my mother next to me when I cooked. And I realized how powerful food can be that at that time I felt free. I felt I wasn't in Cambridge. I wasn't anywhere. I was actually at home. And I wanted to be able to, at that time, not for money. I wanted to be able to do this for other people because I realized that loneliness was devastating. And, you know, at that time, you know, mental health, all of those people didn't even talk about this. But, you know, to be depressed and lonely, and a lot of us in the pandemic, you know, can now understand this. You know, food is a great farm. And I wanted to cook for others. Initially, I didn't think anyone would pay money for my food because, you know, I just lacked the confidence. And I also thought people would be incredibly polite and just eat because they're hungry and not because, like, you know, they like the food. I just thought, oh, they're so happy to eat biryani. No one's going to say it's bad. And of course, no one's going to pay because, you know, how can you ask people to pay? So I went through that for a long time. And then eventually I worked out that, you know, I, this can be a business. My kids were a little bit older. 
And I wanted to use this ability to cook. And I'd already made friends with these nannies from the school to start something. But never, ever did I imagine this would be my journey. I never saw that I could, from a, from my home, move to something else. Everything happened just, you know, by accident, faith, kismet. So it wasn't a planned thing. And at that time, you know, when I was doing supper clubs in, in 2012, it was not a very common thing. It was called secret restaurants and definitely no one was doing Indian food. Now everyone's doing it. So, you know, people know about supper clubs. But that time it was quite a hidden concept that you got people to your house and it seemed a bit you know, naughty and secret to be doing this. And this is when you were in, you'd moved by now from Cambridge to uh, South Kensington in London. And, and we forget, as you say, and, you know, this was only eight years ago, but we're so used to supper clubs and pop-ups and, you know, as you say, regional and specialised Indian food. But at the time, this was something, as you said, very new. How did you begin to get the word about? How did, what was your first one? How did you, who came to your first supper club? Well, my first supper club was for Action Against Hunger. Quite a few of them after that was for that. This is a very uh, Eastern thing that you must start anything on an auspicious note. And for that, for me, always was to feed the hungry. And I thought that I will do quite a few events and whatever money I raise, I will donate to the feeding camp. At that time, you know, Action Against Hunger was, was trying to raise money to feed a lot of children in war zones. And I did at least 10 events that way. And through Action Against Hunger and some friends that I had made, they all came and they donated, you know, they paid 25 pounds and I donated the whole amount. Because again, it was that I felt scared that, you know, if the food is bad, they know they're doing it for a good cause. Uh, they won't criticize me. You know, it, I lacked confidence. Uh, and also, Tom, it's very hard to imagine eight years ago, you didn't see anyone like me who spoke like me, who looked like me, on television, in the media, no one wrote about uh, my food. No one wrote about women. You know, everything has changed now. But at that time, I was not just an outsider. I was on the fringes of society when it came to food. I didn't feel I fitted anywhere. But I was so desperate to feed others. I thought, I'll keep trying. And at some point, maybe I might make it. And this, Asma, is a fascinating thing because, you know, you're talking about being on, on the fringes of food society and now you're very much at the centre. And, you know, when, when you talk about starting your first supper club for action against hunger, for, for giving back, this has been very much a, a, a strong theme. I mean, a strong belief in your whole career of, of giving back. Again, it's not confected. It's, it's how you genuinely believe. I mean, talking about last year, you set up a, a cafe in a refugee camp, for example, in northern Iraq. Tell me about that. Well, I wanted to do something special when I turned 50. You know, I thought, you know, I, I, I want to use the platform I have and a little bit of money that I, I had earned by then because Netflix had come out and made a huge difference to how much money we were making in the business. And I kind of felt that this money has come in, but I'm not going to use it and I will do something nice with it. And then I met someone who was talking about these girls, the Yazidi girls, the ones who are 17 and 18 now who were picked up and they were 11 and 12 by ISIS and were sold repeatedly. But somehow they live with the shame now that they've come back to the camps. Their family is ashamed of them and they have nothing to do. And I said, you know, what do they do? And they had a $5 stipend that the Canadian government was giving them. So I knew now that they had money they could spend. 
because a cafe can't work unless people come to buy something from it. So I, I told this person, you know, I'm going to do it. And she had a project there already teaching them how to read and write. Many of the girls had lost out on education. And she said, yeah, let's do it. And so she gave me the space in a tent, basically. And I thought, I'm going to go it. I raised the money. I raised the money for my restaurant. But the rest of it was just my own money. And I decided I was going to spend my 50th birthday there. But then I'm very Indian. I had to lie to my parents, telling them I'm going to a resort in Turkey to celebrate my 50th birthday. If I told my mother I'm going to Iraq, she would have bloody freaked out. <laughs> so I thought, I cannot tell her that. So I, I, I lied to my parents and, you know, I thought of lying to my husband and I thought, no, I've lied to him too much in life. You know, and in case just something does happen to me, you know, in Baghdad, at least he should know where the hell I am. And I was so happy because when I went there and I spoke to the girls, you know, through an interpreter, I asked if anyone wanted to volunteer to, to cook in the cafe and not a single person raised their hand. And it was a very crushing moment because everything that I thought I could do, I realized I have failed. There was not one volunteer. And I thought, this is not how I will end this journey to Iraq. And I then told all the girls that, you know, he's not beside you. You are no longer in chains. You're not caged in the bazaar being sold. But actually, you still are. Because still you can walk on the earth and say, I'm free, that he doesn't touch me. Nobody touches me against my will. I'm not going to be caged up. I'm not chained. You have to break the chains. I'm giving you a chance to use food as a way to break out. And all the hands started going up. And it was just, I cried because I realized that, you know, it makes sense in every culture. In every culture where women are suppressed or where there is patriarchy. And this also applies to this country where women are, are made to feel that they're not as good as male chefs. You know, they just need one person to be the heckler. They need the one person to be on stage to say, you are equal and I believe in you. And it can make a difference. And it was incredible. You know, these girls came in and, you know, we started business the next day. Some people wanted to pay. Some more people didn't want to pay. But the, by the second day, everyone got used to the idea that they had to pay. And it was great, very successful. And, you know, and now they are asking me for an oven so they can start making bread. They're ambitious and they see they are now invested in this. So it's great. It's, it, you know, I, I gave ownership to them. This is their project. I felt so, you know, after a week when I left and I saw them working, one of the chefs, she ran to me and said, one day I will be greater than you. And yes, she will be. Because, you know, that to be able to say that to me, and I know her story, and I know I've seen her scars. And I just was so happy because it's incredible that, you know, the resilience of women, and I think resilience of human beings, if you give them an opportunity they will take it and they will fly. And that's what I've also been doing with my own life. And this, this is a theme we come back to again and again in your career. Food as a means of escape, uh, of freedom. You know, it's, it's beyond just uh, surviving on food as sustenance. You've always seen food as something much more. And you talk about, for example, your kitchen um, in when you had the pop-up, you know, from your supper club, let's just say, you, you opened a wonderful pop-up that we all came to um, in the Sun and 13 cantons, and then, of course, moved into Soho with Darjeeling Express. But your kitchen, it wasn't just your usual kitchen, was it? Yeah, our, my kitchen was different because it was uh, all home cooks and, uh, you know, housewives, and also older, uh, you know, the average age of the women cooking 
is 50 in my kitchen now, now that I'm also 50. And uh, so these were women who, who've been through a lot of abuse, deprivation, exploitation, and, you know, had been in this country for a long time, being nannies, cleaners in, in hospitals, nurses, and also working in care homes. And, you know, really, really being exploited by a lot of people. But they all could cook. But some of them are vegetarian, some are vegan. They don't cook the food that I, I make. Some of them have never even tasted food like this. You know, and, and you've been to India, so you understand there's a huge class difference and a caste difference. As a Muslim royalty, I would never have even met these women. I wouldn't have sat down and had chai with them because you don't do these things. India is a polarized divided society. But around my table in South Ken, when I put down the tea and I saw that not a single of these women sat down, they kept standing out of respect. So I told them, I'll drink all six cups of tea. You can keep standing because you will not stand and you have to sit down. And when they sat down, I saw the look in their eyes and they realized that, yes, she does see us as equal. I saw them as equal. And in fact, you know, I stand on their shoulders. They are the giants on which this business has been built. They gave their labor, their affection and their love and their solidarity. And everything that has happened today, I am the face of the movement. It's the women who built up this brand who are everything. And there's a quote that I've read, which, which, which sort of resonates. You once said that restaurants should be ranked on how they treat people. I mean, the restaurant business is not known, well, at least it's getting better now, but it's not known for its sort of politeness in the kitchen. Did you feel that there was always going to be equality in the kitchen? There's always going to be kindness in the kitchen. That was really important to you. It's very important because, you know, the whole essence of what we do is to be hospitable and to serve. That really comes from the essence in the kitchen is, you know, the most expensive ingredient you're putting into a dish is your time. Your touch is unique, like your fingerprints. When you create something, it must be something that you give yourself time and patience. It cannot be in a toxic environment of hatred and shouting and abuse. I don't understand how kitchens have developed this culture where the stress of the kitchen is justified for abuse and shouting at people, uh, bullying, you know, sexual harassment of women, and also, you know, name-calling of younger members uh, in the kitchen who are a bit slower, racism against, you know, black kitchen porters. All of this is kind of accepted. It wouldn't be accepted in any other profession. And I just think that if you think this is too stressful for me, I think you should go into therapy. Don't be a chef. Do not justify your inability to deal with stress, to take it out on others as the stress of the kitchen. You come into my kitchen, we did 200 covers in a tiny, tiny kitchen, and there was to be eight of us. You never heard us shout. And it's not because none of we're all unique and, you know, we're very really nice people and, you know, we don't shout. It's not necessary. It is not necessary. It doesn't help. How can the food be beautiful? How can it be meaningful? If it has been created in an environment of fear and hatred, I don't understand that. I mean, there, there was this sort of, it's, it's a very male thing, isn't it? You don't hear stories of, of uh, female chefs screaming abuse at, at people in there. It seems to be a testosterone, macho-driven, you know, to show that you're a man. But do you think that's changing slightly now? Obviously, in your kitchen, it's, it's, it seems to be a safe place, a place of calm and, and, and peace and happiness. Do you feel that the restaurant industry 
as a whole is beginning to change for the better? Do you think it's no longer acceptable to behave, you know, like some chefs used to? I think it's, you know, there is a change. I think that unfortunately too much television uh, was seen by people where shouty chefs were given uh, primetime viewing. And I think that there was almost an acceptance of this quirk that you would be like this. But there there are many voices now challenging this. And I have met some really fabulous, kind and gentle male chefs. And, you know, we all deserve to be in a profession that we should be proud of. And I think that, you know, I hope that when we all come back and the pandemic goes, inshallah, at some point, uh, we will all come back to a world when we we almost lost it. We almost lost everything. Now when we come back, I hope we learn to appreciate those we work with, the industry we're in, and we actually show compassion because literally, you know, every door was shut at some point. And that lockdown should have been a time for us to reflect on the industry and who we are. With the big news site, this, you know, it's a big site, it's, it's a big risk. You obviously have a huge following, not just because of the, the Netflix, which we'll come on to, but, you know, the, the books and, and your very public persona of, of, of supporting training women in the kitchen. Would you feel proud as more and more of the people who work for you in the kitchen move on and begin to open their own restaurants? Yes, and I think that, that I would like to see that. I would like to see it moving beyond just me and, you know, I'm hoping that, the Delhi will be the Kickstarter to get people to move on and encourage more, you know, women to open restaurants. The thing is that, you know, when I was negotiating for this lease, my biggest push with the landlord was, don't do this for me. Do this for the generation that you and I will not see. We can inspire the young who will see this and think that not a single door is closed to them. And I must say, I was very impressed by, you know, very young men who, I was talking to, got it. I said, you know, really, you know, I will be here and then I will be gone. It doesn't matter. But let's leave a legacy for others to know. You know, this is a very, very uh, refined, very European style space, Govan Garden. It's somewhere where someone like me, my shadow would not have crossed this doorstep. Yet I got it. I realized very quickly there's a lot of places that, you know, will not survive. And I'm really sorry for for those places, but I'm going to do this not for myself, not for the women. I'm going to do this for a generation I may not live to see, but I want people to know that nowhere are you not allowed. You are not on the fringe. You are at the heart of the society. And if nobody sees you as belonging there, set up something. And that's how you prove to others, not only do I belong, I have a right to be here. Now, as much as I'd love you to hear more of Asma's wisdom, technological setbacks and the challenges of a working building site thwarted us on this occasion. Such are the times we're in. But I'm sure this won't be the last you'll hear of Asma on Fortnum's Hungry Minds. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to watch her on the Netflix series Chef's Table. Or if you're in London, visit her website www.darjeeling-express.com to make a reservation for her new and upcoming restaurant.
If you haven't already, let us know if you're enjoying Fortnum's Hungry Minds by leaving us a rating and a review. We really love to hear your feedback. You can also subscribe to the series so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. We'll be sitting down with more brilliant guests to talk food innovations, the joy of cooking and our love of real food.